I got to move all my stuff to pull off another page here. Another one? Gone. You think with a calendar that big, I'd get it right. And I do sometimes. Okay, today is November the 1st. New month. Remember, in two weeks, about November 13th, we're going to have our 20th anniversary. And it is going to be fun. So I hope all of you are going to be here and you need to get with Andrea or I don't know, I don't see her list back there. Um, she has a list. And you can talk to her about what you're going to bring if you want to bring something. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of confession of sin to God privately, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness that You give us everything we need and more. We thank You for Your mighty Word, the grace system of perception whereby we can understand the whole realm of doctrine, the logistical grace, everything for what we do here is most important. We pray that You will help us to focus and concentrate for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue in getting the gospel right this evening. We started about oh a lesson ago or so um, <clears throat> with giving Catholicism as an example. Now the point in going to Catholicism and to others uh, that are in that same ilk is for you to demonstrate or to demonstrate to you, excuse me, that. Just because someone says they believe in Jesus Christ does not necessarily mean that they are a Christian, a born-again believer. We found that most people that we come in contact with within our society will tell you, yes, they believe in Jesus Christ. The point in going through this um, revelation with regards to uh, Catholicism is to demonstrate that even though they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they believe in the virgin birth, they believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they will say that Jesus Christ paid for their sins. And you would think, well, surely that would qualify. But you cannot take that for granted. What must you do when you, if you're going to talk to someone? I don't think, by the way, I don't think the best place to start in giving the gospel is to ask someone if they believe in Jesus Christ to begin with. That's not what Paul did. It's not what Peter did. Uh, they start somewhere else because it depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to someone that is not a believer in Jesus Christ anyway, that doesn't even profess to be, you might be talking to a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or someone like that, and they don't know much about Jesus Christ. So you need to start just by finding out who they are, what they believe, and start asking them some questions. But in any case, eventually you will ask them if they are believing the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if they say yes, the best thing to do is ask at least one more question. It doesn't matter how you phrase it, but you need to find out, is that all that you need to do in order to be saved? You need to find out in their soul, is that the only thing that is needed for someone to be born again and to be heaven bound? And that will tell you a lot. Short of that, if you think that someone is a believer just because they say so, you're going to miss a lot of unbelievers because most of them profess, most of the ones that we come in contact with profess to be believers. One other thing. <clears throat> I'm going to reveal some things tonight about Catholicism that most people don't know. And I think it's important for you to understand something about their history, something about their ideology in order to understand how they have been captured by a false gospel. And it's not to... Uh, uh, some, this is nearly like a... Uh, I did this last time. This is not doesn't have anything to do with bashing Catholics. We should feel for Catholics because they have bought a lie and they ha they, it's impossible for them. In fact, according to their tenets, if they think that they can know for sure that they're saved, then they can be anathematized. That means cursed to hell. In fact, the Catholic Church anathematizes anyone who says that they can know for certain that they're saved, especially if it's based on faith alone. So I just thought I would give you that before we begin. I'm going to put the notes on the board that you can see them there also. This is a quote we kind of broke into the middle of this last time. Now, this is written by a woman that is trying to put in her own words what Catholicism is. Now, I know that this is not church dogma. We're not looking at uh, the Council of Trent or uh, Vatican II or the, anything like that. But I thought it was worthy to kind of give us an idea of where they're coming from, what they believe. Many Catholics just don't know what to say when someone asks them whether they are saved. As Catholics, we, vaguely, we are vaguely familiar with saved language. We don't usually ask someone, are you saved? And when someone asks us the question, we often stutter and fumble for an answer. So how should we answer, are you saved? And she says, constantly. We are constantly being saved by the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because salvation is dynamic, ongoing. It's a past, present, and future reality. Already you should start to see that we have some grave problems in this first paragraph that she's, saying, that she's giving us in that it's dynamic and ongoing. We believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible which demonstrates to us that faith alone in Christ alone takes place in a moment of time. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's over 40 things that God does for us instantly in that point of time that are permanent and can never be revoked. For instance, we receive eternal life. He imputes His own righteousness to us. And these are things that are not felt. Most of the time, people aren't even sure about these things until later on when they start studying the Bible and find them out. But they are, are, are irrevocable. 
we would put that saved in the aorist tense in the Greek, which means in a point of time something happens. In fact, we would put it in the perfect tense, which means something happened in the past and the results go on and on indefinitely into the future. Then she goes on to say salvation is a past reality. We have been saved by the death of Jesus Christ. God pardoned our sins, but being pardoned is not the same as being holy. Now, we can have a train wreck here also because we know the Greek word for holy is hagios, and we know that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are hagios. You have hagiazo. You have been sanctified. All have been sanctified. In other words, you are a saint. You don't have to be, you don't have to strive to be holy. You are ready are holy because you have the righteousness of God. You got it the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ. But there's, there's a, a problem there. So being pardoned uh, gives the, the uh, freedom to choose the road to holiness to walk the narrow path. Right now, today, we are being saved. Grace is wooing us down a narrow path. We are becoming holy. Salvation is an ongoing event. And, of course, the way that it is ongoing is because they have to continue to do a litany of things, a whole list of things in order to progressively partake of grace that is parceled out bit by bit by God. And hopefully it will end in heaven, but they have no idea for sure. We are being saved because grace has not yet fully transformed every era of our mind, emotions, desires, and will to the mind, emotions, desires, and the will of Christ. Well, couldn't we say the same thing? We have not been transformed into the image of Christ, which is what uh, God's purpose is for us, but we recognize that that has absolutely zero, zilt, nada, nothing to do with eternal salvation. It's about being sanctified experientially. For we have already been justified the moment that we believed in Christ. And the Bible says over and over, we've gone to so many verses that said, we have been justified by faith. Faith is the key. She goes on to say, and then this transformation takes place. What will, what we be, what we, excuse me, what we will be. Been listening to too much rap, I guess. <laughs> and when this translation, transformation takes place, what we be? Well, uh, the body of Christ. We will be one with Christ, uh, God and I becoming one. Now, this is kind of nebulous terminology here because we recognize we are already one with God. We are one with Christ. And that is because something that happened at the moment that we believed in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask you what it is, and we'll all say it together. <laughs> Hopefully. And there's not one in a thousand Christians that have a clue what this is. But we are one with God, especially one with Christ, because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not a water baptism. We are permanently identified with Jesus Christ the moment we accept the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We all have the Spirit. We all have been baptized by the Spirit. That's a spirit baptism, by the way, nothing to do with water. 
And now that's where we ended last time, so we'll pick up the pace here. Uh, nuptial salvation, marriage, one with several, several sacraments. Now, when I first started reading this, I thought, are they saying that marriage, which we would call a divine institution, it's for everyone. God had designed that from the very get-go. It's a man and a woman, by the way, being linked together and becoming one. And that is in Genesis chapter 2. We have that already. But I think they're saying, that, well, I'll just keep reading and maybe you'll see that it's not necessarily that. So, because it's talking about nuptial salvation. Something has to do with marriage and salvation. Then cannot simply mean being saved from God's wrath or punishment. Nuptial salvation is the freedom to become successfully and evermore profoundly one with the Trinity. Now, we know that anything that is progressive and successfully over a period of time is, doesn't have anything to do with being saved. Sounds like there's a little confusion there with sanctification. Then finally, salvation is a future event. After the veil of this life is ripped in two, we shall be fully liberated to become one, but not all at once. In God's mysterious and progressive plan, our nuptial salvation is completed only with the resurrection of the body. It is then that the body and soul will return to perfect unity. And in this perfect unity, we will enter into perfect unity with the Trinity. Now, if you can understand that, please explain it to me. Because I'm not sure. I just would have to guess exactly what she, what she means by that. I took note that she didn't mention the spirit in there at all. You know, we are body, soul, and spirit as believers. The moment we believed in Christ, we were born again, and we acquired a human spirit. Then she says the two will truly and definitely become one body and soul, God and man, man and neighbor. I don't know. This sounds like it might be slipping a little bit into Mormonism. I don't know, you know, because they think that they eventually, progressively are becoming... Uh, more and more holy, and eventually they will reach that God status. I'm not saying that she, I'm not sure what she means by that, but you know, there is going to be a marriage. We, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are the body of Christ now, but there is going to be a marriage, Re uh, Revelation chapter 19. And they, in Revelation chapter 19, I don't know, I think it's around verse 17, it says that the bride has made herself ready and she has put on. Oh, the garments uh, uh, with fine linen, clean and bright. And then there is going to be a marriage ceremony and we're going to be united with Jesus Christ in a very special way. In Ephesians chapter 5, we have a comparison between that marriage and the marriages that we are accustomed to, at least in, in um, symbolism anyway. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and the man is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. There's a lot of parallels there. But I'm not sure what she means, but we're going to press on. I thought you would maybe get some insights. The main thing that they don't understand is the difference between a positional e event that takes place at the moment of salvation and then after that an experiential sense. Remember, we've talked about we have been already 
experientially, excuse me, positionally sanctified. Sanctified means set apart for special blessings. That has happened at the point of salvation. It's permanent. But apart from that, we are in the process of being experientially sanctified. The more that we learn, the more that we grow, the more capacity that we receive, the more God gives us. In James chapter 2 is called uh, greater grace. We call it super grace. All these things come together. Now, uh, Catholicism is built on the fundamental premise that Christ's sacrifice is not enough. Salvation is in the church, its sacraments, one's personal sufferings and good deeds. This is a quote from the Berean Call, uh, April 1992. Quote, The canons and decrees of the Council of Trent from 1545 to 64 and Vatican II, 1962 through 65, denied every Reformation doctrine from sola scriptura to salvation by grace through faith alone. Sola scriptura, by the way, means uh, only the word, the sola scriptura. Uh, we don't go through to any outside sources. Our faith is based on sola scriptura, the word of God, and that's it. It pronounced 125 anathemas, that is eternal damnation, upon anyone believing what evangelicals believe and preach today. No one can know with certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God, anathema to all who claim they know. And then we have another thing from uh, the, the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary for salvation, but that without them men, ob men obtain from God through faith alone the grace of justification, let him be anathema, let him be cursed to hell. Uh, some people think that Vatican II uh, removed all the things from Vatican um, or from from the Council of Trent, Trent. Nothing could be further from the truth. Here's another one from the Brand Call. Vatican II states repeatedly that only Catholicism's hierarchy can interpret the Bible, and that papal pronouncements must be obeyed without question. There is neither appeal nor recourse against a decision or decree of the Roman Pontiff. Vatican watchdog Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, recent 7,500-word instruction, declares that dissent about the church teaching cannot be justified as a matter of one's conscience. No cult demands surrender of mind and conscience more fully or arrogantly than Roman Catholicism. You, whatever the Pope says, ex cathedra, they believe it's impossible for him to be wrong. That becomes church dogma. And even if you're you, you have to go against your conscience in order to obey it, you are required to do so. Um, I think right now I'm going I'm to give you, uh, I have a tape here. I just got this two days ago <coughs> from Brandon House, uh, Newsday Weekend, I believe is what he calls it. And I happened to hear this. He's talking to uh, a man by the name of... Um, Chris Pinto, and he's made a film called A Light in a Dark Place, in Darkness, and they're discussing uh, about how did we get an English Bible and some history of the Catholic Church. Now, this is the best concise information. It lasts about 12 or 13 minutes. But it, if you listen closely, you're, you're going to learn more probably than you ever had about 
the history of the Catholic Church, which tells us something about about one fourth, or used to be one fourth of the world's population was Catholic, and it will better help us to understand their background, where they come from. Okay, and I hope that it's going to work. That you can hear it, okay? Yes, it's on. Can you all hear that? I'm going to fast forward a little bit. On the wet top up here like this? Okay. Now, what you're saying, I'm, to some of our 
folks may be offensive. They may go to a Catholic church, or they come from the Catholic church background. You yourself were a Catholic, correct? I was raised Catholic, yeah. So what would you say to someone who's listening tonight? We're not here to attack people that are in the Church of Rome. We, we love the people that attend the Church of Rome. We want them to come to Christ and have the free gift of salvation through Christ alone, not by works, lest any man should boast. But this is church history that, for many people, is not known because it's very politically incorrect, isn't it? Yeah, definitely today, it's, it's definitely because the history books have been somewhat rewritten and altered through the 20th century. But I would say this, my favorite way of uh, describing the, uh, the Reformation and what the Reformers did, the Reformation is what happened when you had Catholic priests like John Wycliffe, mm. like Erasmus of Rotterdam, like Martin Luther, like William Tyndale. All of these men began as Catholic priests but they started to read the Bible. They started to read the Word of God. And they recognized that what was written in the Bible was dramatically different from what the, the government of Rome was teaching. I just want to interrupt for a moment. That's the key in reaching Catholics, is get them to see what the Word of God says, because most of them don't know. It wasn't until recent history that they even started having their Mass in uh, English it was in Latin. And you understand what he's saying, that we're going to see, he's going to say in a few moments what happens. But in, this is also known as the Dark Ages overlap this period. If someone was caught with a Bible, what happened to them? They were burned at the stake just for having a Bible. Well, they became convicted. They became, I think, born-again believers and uh, felt an urge, I mean, a real sense of urgency to get out there with the Bible, translate it into a language people could understand, and start sending out preachers and ministers, like, you know, Wycliffe, he sent out his Lollard preachers, mm -hmm. and it was so that he turned England upside down, uh, and so that there were Lollards. so many Lollards during Wycliffe's time that it was said if you met two men on the street in England, one of them was a Lollard. Now, the word Lollard, that was used as a pejorative. What does it mean? It was used as a pejorative, was it not? Yeah, it was. It, it, there, there's some, uh, if you study the word historically, it's kind of, you know, there are different definitions of it. The one that seems to make the most sense is, is uh, a mumbler. Mm -hmm. And it was, mumbler. It, was uh, it was kind of an insult that the Catholic priesthood hurled at them, that these men are mumblers. They're, they're out mumbling and preaching things that they don't understand. That's what they said. Uh, but in reality, they were, they were some of the first to translate the Bible into Middle English. And they would go out and they would show the people, They'd go out into the countryside, highways and byways, and show people the Word of God in their own language. And when they were captured by uh, uh, the Catholic authorities, the Inquisition, they were often burned at the stakes with their Bibles chained around their necks uh, as you know, a punishment. And a warning to others, you know, if you believe this Bible and you preach its doctrines, the same thing's going to happen to you. Does the Church of Rome admit this history? Today, for, you know, there was a time when the Church of Rome used to actually boast about it, where they, they admitted to it and they boasted about it. And then after the revolutionary era in the late 19th century, they began to change their histories and to alter it and to say that, no, they didn't really kill that many people all of that is an exaggeration and so on. Uh, and because of it, so much so that over in England, uh, the English formed the Protestant Truth Society. And the Protestant Truth Society was specifically formed to argue, hey, wait a minute, Rome is changing history, and we're going to tell the truth about what really happened. So really just like I have some 
Jewish friends that started uh, a part of an organization that wanted to keep the truth about the Holocaust out there. Right. You have uh, Protestants that started an organization to keep the truth out there about the Inquisition. Exactly. How many Christians died in the Inquisition in that 600 years? Because uh, then after that you said it went underground. I want to talk about that in a minute. But in the open Inquisition of 600 years, how many people died? It is that the numbers vary, of course, because you have these great massacres that happened where they're not sure exactly how many, but the numbers vary. The most common is 68 million. That's the most common number given. Did you hear that? 68 million during that 600-year period. I, 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 he, he's going to say in a moment that conservative, everyone will say it was at least 50 million, but it's somewhere between 50 and 68 million. And I was thinking... In the Holocaust, Hitler killed, what, six, six million Jews? You know, this is over nearly, nearly seven times that. Anyway. No. Uh, excuse me. It would be, um, ten, uh, what is it, ten times? Uh, okay, about ten times that amount uh, more. And see, have you heard this before? Did you know that many were... And he's going to talk about most of them were burned at the stake. And conservative Protestant historians will say it's above 50 million that were killed. So after 50 million, they kind of lost track. Right. So if you say 50 million or more, you're, you're very accurate in your number. That's a very consistent tally that's given. Let's say uh, a woman was caught reading the Bible by someone, one of these authorities. And I, I don't know, if there, was there a particular group of people appointed by the Church of Rome to, to deal with the people who were writing the Bible and preaching the word openly and spreading the gospel? Was there a particular group of people that had a title that went around doing this? Yeah, it was, the, it, was the, it was the Dominicans at first, for the first 300 years. And they were the followers of Dominic, who started the, the priest who got into the arguments with right. the Christians in France and lost the theological debates and then right. went back to uh, Rome to talk to Pope Innocent III. Exactly. And that began this. So they would call themselves Dominics. Well, they would call themselves Dominicans. Dominicans? Dominicans. As following him. As following Dominic's example. Okay. And that uh, they, be, they become in charge of the Inquisition for the first 300 years. And then the Jesuits come along in 1540 and they end up taking over the Inquisition from that point on. And we're going to do a whole... Have you all heard of those terms before? The Dominicans, Jesuits? They, they're the ones that were essentially uh, doing the Inquisition. At least one whole broadcast on the Jesuits because this is a very, very important topic. Uh, so they would come to an area, find out who was preaching the gospel, who was teaching it openly, maybe who was involved in the translation work, and what would they do to them? Put them on trial? They put them on trial. Or they even have a trial. Well, that's the thing. If you were if you were suspected of heresy by the Inquisition, what they did... Meaning speaking against the doctors of the Church of Rome. That right. would be heresy. Exactly. It was basically, if you opposed anything that Rome promoted or anything like that, you would be called a heretic. It became a general uh, term. But that, as you said, really opposing anything that the Pope has commanded... But what they would do is, uh, if you read the historic records, the first thing they did is they would come and arrest you, okay? You would be taken in, you would be stripped naked, then they would often tie your hands behind your back and put you on a pulley, and you would be pulled on the pulley up in the air so that you're suspended and you're naked with your hands behind your back. And then they would start to ask you questions. You know what he's talking about? Your hands behind like this tied... And then 
pulled up by a pulley like that. I got some, um, I made some PowerPoint slides of what this looked like. And I had about five of them, and I was thinking, I don't know, this might be too much for people to look at. And um, I was going to, I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. I was trying to transfer it over into onto my pen drive, and I pushed the wrong button, and phew, they're gone. I thought, thank you, Lord, that answered my question. <laughs> but it showed uh, people, they had actually uh, wheels, cranks, and gears and everything with a rope going up over a pulley that they would crank them up on, and then they would start asking you the questions. Heresies you were guilty of. Uh, and it's because of the Inquisition that we have laws in our country today, and in England they developed them, about how no man will be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Because the Inquisition for hundreds of years followed no due process of law. They could arrest you, put you in prison, take away your property, take your money, throw your family out of your home. They did all of those things, uh, all under even just the suspicion of heresy. Now, people are saying, wait a minute now, you've got a church doing this. What about the government? Uh, who were the governments at that time? What, what's, what countries uh, are we talking about pre predominantly, and what was going on within those governments? In other words, I think the, the answer is there was really a mixture of church and state, meaning that the Church of Rome had great influence over the government, and particularly if it was a king, I'm guessing, huh? Right. But what they would do is the, uh, the, the, the modus operandi was the inquisitors would issue a, a command, and then the, the king's sheriff or the king's army or whatever would carry out the actual punishment. They would be the ones to go and arrest somebody and burn them at a stake or whatever, and you would have... Uh, it, it's kind of like the format set up at the beginning. You had Dominic Guzman, who was the first inquisitor, and he works with Simon de Montfort, who was a, like a commander, a military commander. In? In the Inquisition. In what country? In France. France. Okay. Against the Albigenses. Okay. So that's how the Albigenses, they called it the Albigensian Crusade. So you had the priest there with the general persecuting. So the church the is partnering up with the government exactly. in agreement to carry out this persecution against these Christians. Right. And then this would be the same model that would be followed in other countries. Oh, yeah. That's the way that it went all over Europe. And, and at what point did the uh, England, or at least, I guess, would it be Great Britain? At what point? I'm going to fast forward a little bit here because there's one last part I want you to hear. And what he's talking about, he goes into a little bit of uh, detail about how the Inquisition did not start with Henry VIII, which some people think, because he was going to get a divorce and the church wasn't going to grant it to him, so he just departed from the Catholic Church. And some people think that's when the Inquisition started, but he's explaining, no, it started at least 100 years before then. Let's see where we are. Divorce. He tapped into a part of the English population that was favorable to Wycliffe's mm -hmm. reforms and his ideas of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Okay, based more on the Bible. So again, a politician co-opting the church or right. joining a religious group over another for political gain. That's he wanted. He gets yeah. divorced.
church, so he said, this group uh, won't give it to me, the Church of Rome. This group maybe will uh, allow me to come out from underneath the authority of the Church of Rome, and so I'll go up with the Protestants. That, that was, uh, yes, kind of. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit more involved than that. It was, uh, that's the cliff note version. That's the cliff note version. That's the cliff note version. Um, but the, the reason that I answer that way is only because some people think that uh, the Protestant Church of England only began because of Henry's divorce. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And the reality is that it goes back more than 100 years before that. Uh, and it, it really grew out of men wanting to be able to believe the Bible mm -hmm. and to worship God and follow the Lord Jesus Christ according to the Scripture. Because even under Henry VIII, the Bible was outlawed mm -hmm. originally. And a woman caught reading the Bible, if she would confess, is it true she'd be buried alive? But if she would not recant, she'd be burned at the stake? Yes. According to one historic account, reading the, Bible. the uh, women were given a choice. If a woman was found with the Bible, if she recanted, they buried her alive because that was considered merciful, because she would die quickly. Uh, but if she would not recant, they burned her at the stake because somebody could smolder and burn for hours being burned at the stake. And most people don't think about that. If you burn at the stake, you could actually burn for hours based on if they used green wood or whatnot, correct? Yeah. I mean, there's even one English historian who has said that burnings at the stake could take up to two days for mm -hmm. somebody to die. Mm -hmm. Because if the fire doesn't burn, if, if it turns into coals and embers and this kind of thing, uh, and the person wasn't famous, if it was a person who was well-known, they would try to help them burn up. Well... <clears throat> I'm glad that I don't have the, <laughs> the slides to show you. I mean, they weren't gruesome. It was just, it, it's just unbelievable, the man's inhumanity to man, isn't it? Um, this, is, this is the historical background that most people don't know because it's been buried for the most part. Um, Catholic, t Oop. here it is. Catholic Church teaches that one must be purged by suffering for one's own sins. It offers indulgences to reduce or eliminate that suffering. Indulgences can be thus can thus discharge what Christ's death could not, according to the church. The church commands that the uses of indulgences should be kept, and it condemns with anathema those who say that indulgences are useless or that the church does not have the power to grant them. Uh, this is what uh, estimating about 50 million were uh, executed over the 600 years. Um, th I was. This is just my uh, summary of what I think about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is the product of the cooperative effort between Satan and man to conduct a diabolical plan of salvation that is completely contrary to grace and the Word of God. It holds over a billion people within its clutches through its damnable heresies. Their only hope of escaping from this church and eternal destiny in the lake of fire is to put their entire trust in Christ and His completed work on the cross. That's the message that they desperately need to hear. 
Then they need to abandon their faith in the Catholic Church and their own personal works. This is a quote from uh, the Brian Call Dave Hunt. Of the thousands of former Roman Catholics with whom I've had contact, not one ever heard the true gospel from the Roman Catholic Church. All had to turn from Roman Catholicism to receive assurances of salvation through the simple faith in the finished work of Christ. The Inquisition is over, but it's still difficult for Catholics to break away from the heretical traditions of the Catholic Church because it continues to demand absolute obedience without question. Catholics who leave the church are excommunicated and often banished from their families. It's not unusual for them to be ostracized by their Catholic friends and to suffer loneliness and isolation. The peer pressure is palatable. palatable. It, it's just, it, even it, you, you think about peer pressure in high school is nothing to someone that leaves Catholicism. It's the same thing in Islam. People will disown you. And there is, uh, that's one reason it's hard for them to do it. The good news to our ex-Catholic brothers and sisters is that God will never leave them or forsake them and His grace is always sufficient. They will have peace, the peace that passes all understanding and find that the confusion and despair they once, uh, they once had can be turned into confidence and joy. But some people get angry if one would even suggest that Catholics are not saved. They protest, insisting Catholics love Jesus. But what Jesus? The Bible warns of another Jesus and another gospel, 2 Corinthians 11.4, Galatians 1.6. Another quote from the Berean Call. Paul cursed the Judaizers of his day for preaching another gospel. They taught that in addition to faith in Christ, one must be circumcised and keep the law. That addendum perverted the gospel into a lie Catholicism has added far more. Here's a question for you. Are there any Catholics, any saved Catholics? The answer is yes, but they are saved in spite of Catholicism, not because of it. If a Catholic has heard and accepted the true gospel, he or she is eternally saved, even though they may still call themselves Catholic. They may lapse back into the work system of the Catholic Church, but the eternal life and perfect righteousness imputed to them the moment they accepted the gospel are irrevocable. They cannot, God will not take that back. He cannot. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. However, those who have not accepted the true gospel but continue to put their faith in Christ plus the Catholic Church plus their works are not saved and will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Now, that's, that's a heavy, heavy thing, but that's what we need to understand. This is a quote from uh, the Brian Call. It's a very good one. It is logically impossible for a Roman Catholic to truly believe the gospel that saves and at the same time to believe the tenets of Catholicism. How can a person believe that Christ's redemptive root work on the cross is finished as he himself said in John 19.30, and at the same time believe that the Mass is a perpetuation of Christ's sacrifice. How can one believe, as Vatican II states, that through Catholic liturgy, especially in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, the one work of our redemption is accomplished, that is, it's an ongoing process, and at the same time 
believe that the work of our redemption was accomplished once for all by Christ on the cross, as so many scriptures clearly state. Here's a few scriptures that you need to jot down in your Bible or somewhere when you're talking to a Catholic that believes they have to go to Mass, they have to be baptized, they have to do all these sacraments, they have to do all these things, especially the sacrifice of the Mass is they're saying that they're turning Christ into literal bread and wine and sacrificing Him on the altars continually. Hebrews 9.12, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.12, But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Hebrews 10.10, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10.14 For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Hebrews 10.18 There is no longer any offering for sin. If that doesn't nail the coffin shut, I don't know what would. A Catholic must choose between... Uh, uh, excuse me... A, Catholic must choose to believe either in the Word of God or the tenets of the Catholic Church. He cannot trust both because they are mutually exclusive on issues of eternal salvation. Here's a quote again from Brian Call. You must believe one gospel or the other. You can't believe two contradictory gospels at the same time. Whoever believes in Christ alone is saved. Whoever believes in Christ plus anything else for salvation is lost. I don't care what they say it might be. Whether it's baptisms, whether it's sacraments, whether it's being a good person, whatever it may be. Eternal life and God's righteousness are offered by the grace of God as a gift that is only received by faith alone and Christ alone. Anything one does to try to add to that simple acceptance of the, gift of, the, of the gift cancels out the gift because it then because becomes payment due and is no longer something received on the basis of grace. See, a lot of people think, well, yeah, they believe in Christ, although it really doesn't matter. It does matter. God only gives eternal life as a gift. And if you try to pay for it, He doesn't give it because then it would be something that is owed you and He doesn't owe us anything. I think this is the last of it here. This is the final quote. And let's see, where did I get this? This is from Getting the Gospel Wrong by J.B. Hickson, page 99. There's one final yet equally indispensable component of the content of saving faith the exclusivity of faith in Jesus Christ. One cannot be said to have expressed saving faith if, while expressing faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, he simultaneously has as the object of his faith additional competing interests. That is, if one believes that eternal life is gained by trusting Christ and doing good works or by trusting Christ and being baptized, etc., or if one expressly believes that faith in Christ is just one valid pathway 
among many to eternal life, that is, those who espouse evangelical pluralism. Isn't it nice I don't have to define pluralism for you? Then his faith is not in the proper object and thus is not saving faith. Faith that does not rest solely on Jesus Christ as the only one who can pay the penalty for sin and give the gift of eternal life is not saving faith. Now, I've had people come to me and say about their Catholic friends, they say, oh, they love Jesus. I said, do they still go to the Catholic Church? Do they still partake of Mass? Do they still believe in the tenets of the Catholic Church? Well, I don't know. They're not really uh, hardcore Catholics, but, but they love Jesus. Let me tell you, beloved, if they have not gotten a true gospel, they are still embracing a false gospel. And as kind, as nice, and as pleasant as they may be, they are straight on a path to the lake of fire. And we have to address that issue. We need to get down with these people in love. It's not about winning a debate. It's about caring for them enough to give them the truth and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to talk to these people so that they will understand that they have to make a decision between the Word of God and the tenets of the Catholic Church. And that decision is going to determine their eternal destiny. And then we have to be ready to give them that Word. This is a huge challenge. But one thing we have to remember, the Word of God is alive and powerful. And prayer changes things. Well, we spent two nights on this example of Catholicism. It's just one of many that has threatened faith alone in Christ alone. And so I hope this will be helpful to you I hope any time that you go to give the gospel to someone and they say, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, or someone says, oh, yes, well, I love Jesus. Well, it might be that they're loving another Jesus or that they're believing another gospel, and it's up to you to ferret that out. And you do that by asking them questions. When they give you the wrong questions, you don't get on your soapbox and start preaching. You start asking them more questions, and you start giving them Scripture and depend on the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's, let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your grace, for Your plan of salvation. We're so thankful that You have solidified this in our souls to where we don't have to work or wonder or worry about where we will be after we die. We will be thanking You all eternity because you say in your word that we can know for certain that we have it. These things are written that for those who believe in the Son of God that they may know that they have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 We thank you for that. And pray that you can help us to impart to our unsaved friends and family the good news, the great news. And anything that is apart from it is damnable heresies. We pray that you will help us to rightly divide the word of truth and have a heart for these last lost souls. For we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.